Hi friends, welcome back to the Jessica Hazeman podcast. Before I dive into today's interview, I wanted to first thank you guys so much for being so supportive and eager to be a part of the spring cleaning challenge. I am already feeling held accountable for my end and I hope that you guys are doing the work in your house as well and seeing some amazing progress for spring cleaning. If you want some more information on that, go to my website, jessicahazeman.com, and check out all of the information as well as print out your own spring cleaning calendar. It's just 15 minutes every day. Without further ado, I would like to introduce you to Lily Nichols. She is a registered dietitian nutritionist, a certified diabetes educator, researcher, and author with a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition. I am so happy that I stumbled upon her Instagram and have been low-key stalking her for the past five months. Her work is known for being research-focused, thorough, and unapologetically critical of outdated dietary guidelines. Who doesn't need that person in their corner? She is the author of two best-selling books, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. I have to tell you guys that the information that I learned in this episode is life-changing, whether you are pregnant, trying to conceive, or just a woman that wants to learn more about their body. It is quite incredible, the information that she shares. I am so excited to sit down with Lily and have you guys listen in on this conversation. You guys know I'm a huge planner, and eventually I want a family of my own, so I'm excited to learn all that I can about pregnancy and the nutrition related to it. It's my pleasure to welcome Lily to the Jessica Hazeman podcast. Hi, Lily. Thank you so much for being here today. Of course. So I've been following along with your information on Instagram, and my followers already know that I'm a huge planner, so I'll soak up any knowledge that I can. But regardless of my situation, I also have a huge following of female listeners, and I know that they would benefit from the knowledge that you have as well. But before we even dive into that, I'd love to hear more about you. Was nutrition always a big part of your life growing up? You know, I think you could say that it was. Um, My mother was definitely health conscious. And so she naturally just kept processed food, junk food, soda, white bread um, out of the house for the most part. So I just didn't grow up eating quite as much of that, at least not as my, you know, staple default meals at home. We certainly had times where we'd get fast food or, you know, at a friend's birthday party, we'd have cake. I mean, we'd have, you know, dessert or whatever at our own birthdays too. And we trick or treated, we did all the usual kids stuff. It was just, I think there was a little more awareness around how junk food and sugar make you feel differently, you know? So if we did have soda at somebody's house, we'd be like, oh yeah, that kind of hurt my throat or that kind of upset my tummy. And so you just wouldn't, choose to eat it as often you'd kind of know going into it okay this is probably going to make my body feel bad and so I'm not going to have it as often so it was kind of interesting I don't know if it was exactly intentional maybe it's kind of that reverse psychology thing where it's like well it's not completely off limits it's just not something we have very often because we don't feel well and then the kid sort of naturally just eats less of it yeah (laughs) so so it definitely worked in my favor and I, I do think it um, influenced my choice to go into this field as a career, knowing that you can influence your, just your quality of life and your risk for certain diseases and whatnot by the food you put in your mouth. 
Yeah. So did you, how early on did you realize that this is the career that you wanted? I would say either middle school or high school, probably more high school age. Um, I think middle school, I was still happily eating junk food when I could get away with it. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, high school, it definitely became more of an interest. And so, yeah, so I explored different, different ways of eating. Um, in high school, I interned with a nutritionist and really saw, you know, on a firsthand private practice level, how it impacts people's quality of life. Uh, so yeah, that was when I went into college, I, you know, when I was looking at schools, I was looking at schools that had nutrition programs. Uh, so I, I declared my major right away and didn't change it. That's such a young age to like know what you want to do and like be confident about it. I feel like at, in high school, I was like, oh yeah, maybe I'll do this and maybe I'll do that. So I love that. It's something that you like knew and it was something that was part of your childhood too. That's really cool. Do you feel like your parents ever sat down and had conversations with you about like, you know, what protein, fats and carbs are or like, how did they teach you and educate you about foods or was it more kind of lead by example? That's a good question. Um, I can't say that we really, I can't say we really had conversations to the like, you know, maybe dietetics level of like macronutrient breakdown. Um, but I think it was more on like a general scale of like processed and unprocessed. Um, definitely there was awareness around foods high in sugar. There was also an awareness on like, you know, if we were under the weather or getting sick, you know, eat certain things to feel better. So like, okay, you're getting sick and your nose is getting stuffy. We're not going to give you more sugar, which is tough on the immune system. And like, there's actually a lot of peer reviewed research that shows that it's not just like crazy woo woo. Um, you know, we're not going to have like a ton of dairy, which for some people can make your mucus a little, you know, thicker. Um, and we're going to have like chicken soup and we're going to have more vegetables and you'll have citrus for the vitamin C. It was more kind of on, I guess on, on like a very, I mean, for now, because it's my career, I would say like an elementary kind of level understanding of food as medicine of like, oh, I heard garlic is good for the immune system. Let's put garlic in the dinner tonight and let's eat more vegetables and let's, um, but I do think there was also a level of, you know, they definitely heard the, the, what I would consider propaganda about meat and cholesterol and saturated fat not being good. So those were things that they consciously tried to limit. Mm -hmm. um, in our house. So those were things that, you know, took a little more research and undoing and reprogramming through my own experiences and research um, in college and afterwards. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I would say just general conversations about how foods make you feel um, was sort of the level that we got to. Yeah. So when you went into college, tell me about that. Like, tell me about your internships and what you got to learn and, you know, the cool things that you got to do throughout college. So my experience in nutrition school was, I think, different than a lot of people because I had already had, like, real life experience, like, shadowing under a nutritionist and 
trying out some different ways of eating myself. Like we had several people who were vegetarian in our extended family, as well as my sister in my immediate family. And so, um, and I had been vegetarian for a while. And so in working with that nutritionist that I had interned with um, prior to school, I, you know, realized that that was really not the best <laughs> way of eating for me. I haven't looked back since. Um, but I came into school kind of understanding that like, the purpose of this university program is to train me to be a registered dietitian. And the purpose of registered dietitians generally is to work in hospitals or outpatient settings in a clinical settings and relay the dietary guidelines. So I kind of inherently understood that like what I was learning was a certain dogma, which um, I was sort of open to exploring how much data there was to back what my textbooks were saying, I mean, because arguably they are like <laughs> funded by big food, big ag and, and big pharma. So the, it is what it is. Um, versus I had already been introduced to this like real food ancestral eating sort of approach, but I didn't know how much data there was to back that either. So I kind of went into it without the typical like rose colored glasses of a newbie student who's like, I'm here to learn the best there is to learn about nutrition. I was like, okay, I understand this program, like what this program does and what it is here to teach me and what sort of credentials I will get if I follow through with completing this degree and doing my internship and, you know, the relative importance of that, A, and like being able to practice legally, but also having people understand that you have sort of a, a baseline scientific knowledge. So like, you know, I took my education for, what it was. And I think in a lot of ways, the conventional dietetics training is helpful in that there is such a strong science background. I mean, you have to take biology and chemistry and biochemistry and organic chemistry and physiology. And there's just so many different courses that you take that are heavily science-based. Um, and in addition, I took a lot of different electives to round out the education. So I took like pesticides, public policy and the environment course. I took a clinical herbalism course. I took a graduate level vitamin metabolism course. I like kind of went outside a little as, you know, as much as I could, I took like a kinesiology course on dietary supplements and athletics. And so I tried to kind of round out the areas that I felt were kind of missing. Mm -hmm. And then I took the opportunity anytime there was, you know, the option when we were doing projects to sort of prove or disprove some of these ideas that are in the natural health community. So I, so for example, one of the courses, I can't remember which class it was, but we had to do like a special presentation. And my presentation was on phytic acid and how um, phytic acid is a compound in grains, nuts, seeds, and legumes that is there essentially to prevent seeds and, and things from germinating before they're ready, but they bind up minerals. They hold on to minerals and they prevent you from absorbing minerals. And all sorts of traditional cultures had methods for like sprouting, soaking, fermenting these foods so that they didn't deplete the mineral levels in your body and you got more nutrition out of them. So that was the idea, but I was like, is there data behind it? So I did a whole presentation on phytic acid and traditional food preparation, right? So I always like took the opportunity to like go the extra mile on some of those things to see like, 
again, is there like data behind this or is there not data? Same thing as if I learned something in a, you know, conventional class I'd see in my textbook to recommend margarine over butter. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so outdated. But like, let me pull up, where's the state of science right now on butter and heart disease or saturated fat and heart disease. And so I really took the time to just go into the literature mm -hmm. a lot um, and just not take everything that I was told or reading in my textbooks at face value. So I think it's like, you know, as with any education program, I think it's what you make of it, right? So you kind of understand, I think it's really helpful to understand like the box, like understand the confines of the box of your profession and understand where to kind of like push the boundaries or like why are certain topics controversial or what is the rationale for XYZ recommendation? How was XYZ recommendation set? I mean, that's something that I've really gone into in my career now. Um, and so ultimately I think it was, you know, a boon to, to take a conventional program for that reason. Yeah. Okay. I'm curious for the phytic acid, what did you find? There's a hell of a lot of evidence to support traditional food preparation. So oh. the soaking, sprouting, fermenting, such as like a sourdough bread, like a traditional long fermentation versus a, you know, instant yeast where you have a very quick rise. Like most commercial bread is just very quickly, you know, they add outside instant yeast, it rises really fast, it bakes off in the same day versus traditional sourdough fermentation. You could be fermenting a loaf, you know, for like days, depending on how you do your fermentation. Um, so the fermentation process, um, sprouting process, uh, soaking legumes before you cook them, all of these things help to reduce phytic acid and increase mineral bioavailability in the foods. Um, so they do actually, you know, there's a lot of solid research, especially for um, in communities that really are, have a very heavily cereal or legume based diet, you can like substantially reduce rates of iron deficiency, anemia and zinc deficiency and so on, um, when they like get back to traditional food prep methods. So yeah, it was it was very interesting. There's actually a ton of data on it. That's amazing. Um Wow, that's really cool. And I love that you're pushing the boundaries and you're doing your own research. I think that's so important. And it, especially because when you graduate, then you're left to, you know, fend for yourself in the world and you need to continue to learn and you need to continue to like find the right information. Because if you're going to be working for 30 years, it, a lot happens and you need to keep up with that. So I love that. Um, at what point did you decide in your path of um, becoming an RDN that you wanted to focus on prenatal nutrition? So that happened after I finished my internship. Um, so we didn't really get into that, but that's like a year-long program you do after your, your degree. And I just happened to have an opportunity to work with the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program, which focuses mainly on gestational diabetes, but also any type of diabetes and pregnancy. And I had always kind of understood there was, especially from the ancestral lens and like the work of Dr. Weston Price, that there's sort of generational patterns that can be passed on. So like the health of a mom or a grandmother can actually influence the health of the offspring and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren, like things can be passed along generation after generation. Now we call this epigenetics. They didn't have that name for it back then. 
Um, and in working with that organization, I, I learned that actually the exposure to elevated, like poorly controlled gestational diabetes, so elevated blood sugar in pregnancy that isn't well managed, um, that can actually influence the child's risk of obesity and type 2 diabetes, anywhere from like 6 to 19 fold higher risk of developing either of those um, by the time they're teenagers, which is huge. So this was big because I had always had an interest in, um, you know, maybe we could like reform the school lunch policy and make a dent in this childhood obesity epidemic because they're just feeding crappy foods in schools, right? Um, but to understand that like, whoa, there could actually be something going on via maternal exposure in utero that's like pre-programming their pancreas and their insulin resistance and their risk of diabetes, like, whoa, this is like a two birds with one stone situation. You don't have to deal with the bureaucracy of like trying to get school lunch programs changed with like, I'm sure people have been, I know people have been working on that for decades and it's slow going. Um, but also this is a time in a woman's life where she's probably the most motivated she's ever going to be to be healthy and eat well. And we can, it's like a two birds with one stone situation. So that that got me kind of hooked <laughs> to prenatal. Um, and it also made me aware like, wow, there's, again, there's like a lot of modern research that backs some of these observations from long ago. And there is a lot that's not necessarily heredity, but the in utero environment, and they call it fetal programming that we can actually make a difference in with, you know, better nutrition and lifestyle advice for, for mothers before and during pregnancy. That's super, super interesting. Does the prenatal nutrition differ drastically from like uh, just being a healthy woman in general? You know, not necessarily. There's really a lot of overlap between what it takes to maintain, you know, hormone balance, blood sugar balance, um, and like nutrient dense foods. So you're like maintaining your micronutrient status as the, the same stuff holds true in pregnancy and arguably the same stuff holds true postpartum. There are like subtle differences, you know, you can get into like conversations around, you need a little more of this or a little more of that, or like you especially want to be cautious about nutrients that can help prevent neural tube defects during the time right before and during early pregnancy. Um, so, you know, your folate and choline and all these, you know, B vitamins and other nutrients involved in methylation, but really arguably, if you're doing that all the time, anyways, <laughs> then it doesn't necessarily have to be anything special before and during and after pregnancy, you know, if you're right. already doing it, um, I think there's just more incentive during those times and maybe like subtle focuses on like, okay, at this stage of pregnancy, when you might be dealing with this symptom, you can tweak your diet in these ways, or you may expect this and mitigate this symptom with that. Um, but it, there's a lot of similarities, a lot of crossover. That's really interesting. And I want to hear more about all those little details, but for somebody that, you know, is planning to conceive, what are some changes that they can make right away to help th prepare their body to conceive and get pregnant as well as like get ready for pregnancy? Yeah. So the, the big one for me is like increasing your intake of nutrients that support egg health. And that big word I said before, methylation, which is uh, really involved in like the transcription of like DNA, like the creation of 
the baby itself mm-hmm. and the and the relay of genetics and making sure that that whole process goes smoothly. So big nutrients for that are choline, um, folate, vitamin B12, a whole bunch of different B vitamins, um, glycine. And these are things that are, I mean, they're found widely in the diet, but certain foods are like much richer sources of these nutrients. So I do emphasize the consumption of eggs, including the yolk. Um, Egg yolks are going to be your number one source of choline in the diet. Second only to liver, if you're looking at like a, you know, amount per hundred grams of food. Um, Although people don't consume liver in as high a quantity as eggs, if at all. So eggs end up being the number one source. Um, Liver, of course, is like high in all the nutrients I listed, plus many more. So especially like your iron and copper and vitamin A, um, as well as B12, which all work together in red blood cell production. So that helps prevent anemia down the line. So if you can really get some liver into your diet in some way, shape or form. Where do you get liver and like, how do you cook it? And is like, is it just something that you got to choke down? Like, how do you prepare it that it would taste good? That sounds so bad. (laughs) You can choose to choke it down. So here's the thing, you know, most of us did not grow up eating organ meats. I certainly didn't grow up eating organ meats. Um, And that's really a shame because it is something that if you are exposed to it early, you have a taste for it. Yeah. Um, and it can be enjoyable, but it, it takes a little, you have to like, I call it like pull up your grandma's sleeves and like get in the kitchen and just like do it, you know? And so for me, the easiest way to incorporate liver, and by the way, you don't have to eat a ton of liver. Like it's so nutrient dense that even if you're getting like a few ounces a week hidden in other meals, like it all counts. You don't have to have liver like every single day of the week or something, yeah. you know, it's like a little bit goes a long way. Yeah. So for me, I found that, um, I'll make like a big batch of pate. There's a recipe for it on my website. Um, and then I'll freeze it in like three to four ounce containers or like one to two ounce ice cube trays. And then when I'm making some sort of a ground meat dish, so let me think of all the examples I have because there's a bunch in real food for pregnancy. I have a shepherd's pie. I have a meatloaf. I have meatballs. I have, um, uh, let's see, a Indian spiced stuffed bell peppers. You can hide it in bolognese sauce. Um, anything that's like, you can sort of dilute the liver in amongst the other meat. Um, yeah. And there's enough spices in there that it can taste good. So hence like the sort of curry flavors of Indian food, Um, you can hide it in Mexican food really well. If you do like a ground beef with some liver, ground up liver or pate mixed into it. And then like a bunch of, you know, chili powder and oregano and garlic and cumin, um, you really don't notice it. So that's how I do it. I I sneak in anywhere from like three to six ounces per pound of ground beef. I'd suggest three ounces per pound if you're just starting and, um, you know, make sure you season it well you know, plenty of your like sea salt and whatever herbs you like. And then it's just sort of hidden amongst the rest of the meal and nobody notices. And in in fact, it kind of like enhances the flavor because liver, like, I think to some people it can taste really metallic because it's so high in iron, but if it's mixed into other foods, it just sort of like enhances the depth of flavor without being like 
uh, iron. (laughs) Right. So, you know, it it takes some getting used to, but that's, um, that's the way that I have found the easiest way to, to sneak it into things. That's really helpful. My husband and I are like constantly, you know, trying to be healthier and he's mentioned organ meat quite a, quite a bit. And I'm like, I, you know, grew up cooking American food. Like I only know what I know how to cook and I don't know how to cook liver or handle liver at all. But do you just get it at like your local grocery store or do you order it online? Where do you find liver? Uh, Well, it depends on where you're at. So I've lived in all different places that have different, you know, access to food. Um, I try whenever possible to get my liver from like organic pasture raised sources, if at all possible. Um, so I'm currently able to get organic chicken liver at the store and occasionally grass-fed beef liver. But for the most part, what we do is we have a deep freeze and we'll do a cow share. Um, so a portion of a cow and depending on how much freezer space we have, maybe an eighth to a quarter of a cow. It depends on how big the cow is, right? But I always request the organs with it. And a lot of times they just give them to you free. There's also a local um, grass-based farm here that we do our cow share. And then I can like buy additional organs on the side because most people don't want them. So I go for like all the odd bits have their own nutritional benefits. So I'm like the person who's like, ooh, like tallow and lard and I'll get the bones and I'll get the organs and um, so that's how I do it. I know there's like U.S. wellness meats and a couple other places you can purchase um, separately. You can also do um, like liverwurst or there's other sausages that have liver mixed into them. Some farms and some sources have like ground beef that has heart and liver ground into the mixture itself. So you don't have to do the work. It's already mixed in for you, which is a great option. I just haven't come across that locally personally. So I I just sort of do my pate version. Um, And I will also say that keep in mind that, you know, not all organ meats are created equal in terms of their flavor. So certainly liver is like, has some really specific nutritional benefits, like especially it's high iron and copper and B12 and vitamin A and choline and all that. Um, But the other organ meats are also really nutrient dense in different ways and they have much, uh, not as strong of a flavor as liver. Um, the exception would be kidney. That is like, uh, it's, that's a tough sell even for me. <laughs> so if you're just venturing into organ meats, you might want to like do hidden liver, steer clear of kidney, go for heart. Heart is like, heart is, you know, it's, it's a muscle and it's a very lean muscle. Um, but it's very flavorful. It's like, it just tastes like a more intense like tri-tip or something. Yeah. I actually just tried heart. My friend, the friend the other night, she's a chef and her, um, boyfriend at the time, you know, hunts and whatnot and was like, here, I have this, I think it was a deer heart or a, yeah, um, something along the lines of that. And she didn't tell us. She was like, just try this. And I was like, okay, like here, here we go. I've had a glass of wine. Sure. And I tried it and I was like, this is really good. She prepared it really well. And she was like, you're eating heart. And I was like, Ooh, I did not know that, (laughs) but it ended up being good. No heart, heart has a really, I mean, I hope the word doesn't get out too much because then the prices will skyrocket. Right. But, um, heart has a really good flavor. In my opinion, it's much more mild than liver. It is an easy sell to most people. And 
it also has some, some of its own nutritional perks. So heart is like the richest dietary source of um, CoQ10, which is like an amazing antioxidant with tons of research behind its, its value for fertility um, and just at overall energy production. So that's kind of cool about heart. Um, yeah, but it's, it's delicious. So the different animal, the different animals, their organ meats will be different and they might taste different. So like a beef heart is massive. I mean, if people really want to read about beef heart, I have an article on my website, um, for Thai chili beef heart skewers. It's a recipe, but also a story of the first time we prepared beef heart. This is many years ago, but it's pretty hilarious to read. Um, so beef heart is big. It's a big animal. Chicken hearts are really small and tender. It's like one or two bites. Um, they often sell them in a package of like many hearts. So you could just fry them right up in the frying pan, maybe with like a little breading and some like smoked paprika, delicious, like little one or two bite things. And then of course a deer heart is gonna be slightly bigger because it's a bigger animal um, mm -hmm. and might have a little more intense flavor than chicken heart, but they're all, you know, they're all nutrient dense, um, many times more so than muscle meat. So you know, if people do are, are willing to kind of <laughs> explore what's yeah. out there. Um, yeah, there's a lot of benefits. That's interesting. So besides the eggs and the organ meats, what are some other things that can like help prepare your body for pregnancy? So definitely folate rich foods and both, you know, organ meats and egg yolks have a decent amount of folate in them. In fact, liver is the richest dietary source of folate. But in addition to that, you have leafy greens, you have legumes, you have asparagus, avocado, sunflower seeds, seaweed. Those are all really high in folate, um, as well as many of those are high in different trace minerals, which are beneficial to overall fertility. So incorporating some of those foods into your diet can be really helpful. I would also say getting getting realistic or real with yourself maybe about your intake of added sugar or foods that are just kind of like empty calories. Like how can we maximize the nutrient density of your diet? So try to like displace the things that don't really have much nutrition in them with other things that are more rich in vitamins and minerals. So a good example is like, are you eating white bread and crackers and like regular pasta a lot. Maybe you want to swap out like a lentil or a bean based pasta, or maybe you want to swap in a sprouted grain or whole wheat sourdough bread to go back to that original phytic acid conversation, right? If you're going to do bread, that's probably going to be one of your better options. Um, are sweetened beverages coming into your life on the regular? Can you swap those out for just like a flavored sparkling water or water with lemon or tea or, you know, things that just don't have quite as much sugar because blood sugar balance plays a big role in egg health and also sperm quality. So I would, I would look at those things. Um, and then finally, if I'm going to choose one more, I would say, are you incorporating omega-3 rich seafood into your life that also plays a role in um, egg quality and very early um, brain development of baby so if we can optimize your dha status um, prior to pregnancy that is helpful so um, you know you're looking at generally smaller fish are the ones that have fewer environmental toxins and mercury but then also looking at cold water fish 
that have more of the omega-3s in them. So your salmon, your sardines, um, those would be really good options to swap in. And then occasionally, if, if you like them, shellfish are really, really high. They have, they have DHA as well, but they're really, really high in uh, iron, zinc, B12, copper, selenium, iodine, all really important nutrients for fertility. And so if you can fit in some shellfish, that would be like oysters, clams, or mussels, even once a week. It's kind of similar in a way to organ meats in terms of like how nutrient dense they are. But that really boosts fertility, especially for men, by the way, because it's that zinc and selenium combo is very important for um, sperm health. Yeah. And um, there's a, a good chance once you get pregnant that you might face some food aversions and maybe some nausea and might not want to eat all the things that I'm talking about right now <laughs> for a period of time. So it is, um, it'll give you peace of mind to eat those things ahead of time, build up your nutrient stores. So if you do hit a rough patch with nausea or food aversion, so you can rest assured that, oh, actually I have some nutrient stores to rely on during this time. Yeah, I think that's important. I've heard so many people are like, I like literally could not look at meat for, you know, a month while going through pregnancy. Do you have any other tips? Like I love getting that, you know, those, those nutrient stores built up. Do you have any other tips that will help those like food aversions or ways to trick your mind into actually eating? Cause nutrition is so important. And I know that so many people are like, oh, I don't want food. I know it's really tough. And you know, I, I have two kids, so I, I've experienced pregnancy twice. And I, I think, well, at least the first time I went into it and I'm like, I'm going to have the easiest pregnancy because I eat so well and da, 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 I'm not going to have nausea. And you know, certainly my nausea wasn't as bad as some people. I, I really didn't throw up a whole lot, but there was this sort of low level fatigue and queasiness that is just exhausting. So first off, I think we need to give ourselves some grace because our body is doing like a huge amount of work during this time. You're not only like forming all of the internal organs and tiny little structures of a brand new human being, um, your body is also growing this massive organ, your placenta, that will ultimately take over nourishing baby once it is fully formed and attached. But in that interim time, which is really the majority of the first trimester, the embryo is actually being nourished by the lining of your uterus, by your, your endometrium, via these little structures called your endometrial glands. It's actually really interesting. So your endometrium, of course, is that lining of the uterus that builds up every month when you have a period or before you have a period. And then when you have a period, that's the endometrium shedding. So if you go into pregnancy, having had like, I have regular, pretty good menstrual cycles with, you know, a decent amount of blood flow, but not super excessive, you can pretty much rest assured, like the embryo is being fully nourished by everything your body built up in that endometrium. And until the placenta takes over, your body's kind of has it handled I don't want to say that like first trimester nutrition doesn't matter whatsoever, but we do need to like give people reassurance that like there's a reason <laughs> that like people have healthy pregnancies all the time, despite this nausea and fatigue. I mean, your body really does want you to like slow down and rest during the yeah. first trimester. So I think you really have to lean into that. And then the, the other side of it is that, yes, there are things you can do nutrition and lifestyle-wise to kind of mitigate those symptoms. 
So certainly um, there are some nutrients like magnesium and uh, vitamin B6 and arguably even iodine. And I would say one more salt that can be helpful for mitigating the nausea. Um, in addition, trying to avoid major blood sugar swings can be really helpful. So not letting yourself get too hungry or too full, but also whenever it's possible, because I know carbs are usually the easiest thing to like get down and keep down when you're nauseous. If you can fit in a little bit of protein, even if it's like tiny bite of cheese or some Greek yogurt or a single bite of egg, if you can fit it in or some peanut butter, um, or even if you need to do like a smoothie with some, you know, additional protein in it, like a grass fed whey protein or a, a, a like organic pea or rice protein that you like add to your shake um, or collagen protein. Any of those things that help you fit in a little bit of protein will go a long way in like stabilizing your blood sugar levels. So whenever possible, try to fit in a little bit of protein. It makes a big difference. There's so many people that reach out saying like, oh my gosh, when I just switched up my breakfast to get some protein in the morning, even if it wasn't like a big breakfast, but just like a little bit. So I wasn't just eating the plain saltine crackers or the piece of fruit. Um, I wouldn't have that blood sugar crash and that nausea surge as a result. So that can also be helpful. It's just like whatever you can do, throw the kitchen sink at it and see what works because it will probably change hour to hour, day to day. And there's no like magic bullet that works for everybody. Right. <laughs> right. So if you aren't, if you were one of the lucky ones that doesn't experience that nausea and, you know, fatigue and whatnot, what are some things that they should be focused on implementing into their diet, especially during that first trimester? Is it kind of the same as the prenatal or is it different? Are there different things we should be adding in? So this isn't, I get asked this a lot. Like, is there different things I need to focus on different trimesters and arguably the same nutritional principles hold true all trimesters. They're just certain nutrients are important for different reasons based on what's happening with fetal development at that time. Like I said, first trimester is a bit of a, it's probably, I don't want to say it's the least important, but I'd say like first trimester and the preconception period, I kind of lump into one nutritionally, if that makes sense. Um, in that you kind of like share the load with whatever nutrients you already took in um, pre-pregnancy because it is that like endometrial lining that is fueling you. So it's mostly about, in my opinion, like making sure you're getting the nutrients that support methylation because any of like the major structural defects that can occur, like neural tube defects, happen within the first, you know, eight to 12 weeks of pregnancy. So you know, your choline and folate especially um, would be really important um, during those times. So that said, it can be tricky to like get them in if you're super nauseous and you can't even like, if you can't eat much real food, you probably can't even take your prenatal vitamin. Maybe you can. Some people will like empty it into their smoothie or something so they can just get it in that way. But those nutrients are particularly important um, in the first trimester. And then, you know, later in pregnancy, as, as it's less about like all of the structures of baby and like the cells differentiating into different organ systems, like that all happens early on. And then later on, it's mostly just like 
baby puts on weight, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. So that's more like finishing skeletal development and depositing minerals into their bones and finishing brain development and lung development and like getting those special fatty acids for um, like cognition and brain health. So like, again, the same nutrients still are important, but they're important for different reasons. Yeah. I like that. So you mentioned the folate. I know that a lot of people take the prenatal vitamin. Is that something that you suggest or do you suggest getting it from food directly? What are your thoughts? So, I mean, I'm always an advocate for food first. Um, however, I do acknowledge that, you know, not all people are eating a nutritious diet for a variety of reasons, or you might be going into pregnancy already nutrient depleted and you need levels above and beyond what a typical diet is going to provide to keep you, you know, nourished and have enough for baby as well. So I think supplements definitely have their place. And especially when you're in tough phases, like nausea phase or aversions, or for whatever reason, maybe it's like food, you know, choices or allergies or other things, say like you have an egg allergy, it's going to be pretty hard to meet your choline needs entirely through diet. Um, if you're not consuming egg yolks, cause like more than half of our choline intake comes from eggs. So in that case, like a choline supplement makes sense. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so for me, I think a prenatal vitamin is like an insurance policy. And I do think for the majority of people, it makes sense to take a prenatal, you know, it, it's okay. If you don't take it like every single day, um, you might pick and choose if you have like a really nutrient dense day of food where you have like salmon and then you make the meatloaf that has hidden liver in it and you have kale and eggs for breakfast and you have like you know orange and almonds for a snack and you're just like fitting in all these great nutrient-dense foods um and you get some sunlight that day and it's in the summer so you're making plenty of vitamin d you know that might be a day where you're like eh, i could skip the prenatal and then there might be other days where you don't feel so good aren't eating so well and that's a day when i'd say yeah you probably want your prenatal it all kind of evens out over the end um but absolutely i think there is you know a time and a place for prenatal i think you do need to be like particular about the quality because there's really no uh standard for what counts as a prenatal um, supplements are very interestingly borderline unregulated <laughs> so you have to be like an informed consumer i it, i'd be hard pressed to find one at like a typical drugstore for example that i could recommend um maybe at a health food store but typically i i refer people to more like practitioner lines that are formulated with you know active um versions of the vitamins so your body doesn't have to do all the legwork of converting this nutrient to that to that to that in order for your body to do anything with it to give you quantities of the nutrients that are actually necessary instead of just like a pixie dust like right 10 milligrams of choline which is like maybe one percent of what you actually need um so yeah you have to be kind of an informed consumer on that stuff do you have recommendations for a couple of places that people can look if they're interested in a pre Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, and I do have a whole chapter on supplements, uh, chapter six of Real Food for Pregnancy for people who want like the full breakdown and what things I look for and why, and also like additional supplements outside of a prenatal that can fill in gaps in the diet depending on how you eat, right? 
anytime you're like taking out a certain food or food group, you can open up the possibility of, of a lack of nutrition. Um, I will say that like some of my favorite brands are um, Full Circle Prenatal, which is formulated by a dietitian colleague of mine. So really excellent formula um, from somebody who works directly in the women's health and fertility prenatal field. Uh, I also like Seeking Health. Um, there's some other like, you know, other brands that are like, eh, like it's okay, but it's not, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable putting like my name behind it, but they can right. kind of fill in if you don't want to um, spring for one of the like optimal formulations, I guess. Um, but I do have a, a prenatal download. There's a link in chapter six that links out to them if people want to see all my recommendations and why I recommend them and the pros and cons of different formulas. Cause I, I, I don't think there's like one right solution for every single person. It just a lot of things really depends on like, what's your baseline health and diet quality and, and all that. Yeah. Now that we're talking about supplements, I'm interested in your pers perspective of like smoothie enhancements. I don't know why I want to use the word enhancements, but you know, like adding green powders into smoothies, do you have like either recommendations or cautions in that aspect? Cause I know smoothies are sometimes easier to like get your nutrients packed in. Yeah. So I will start by saying I'm not a smoothie fanatic. I'm somebody who always feels significantly more satisfied from eating if I can chew it. Um, and I'm not really a super sweets person. So I'm not like, I'm not a smoothies person, but if you do smoothies, I would just caution people on this, like a make sure that your smoothie is not all fruit. Cause a lot of the things that I see people taking in as smoothies are just a whole bunch of fruit and it's this huge sugar bomb. And if you happen to test your blood sugar or wear a continuous glucose monitor, I mean, it seems healthy cause it's a smoothie and it's all this fruit, but it's just a ton of sugar and it, it would be much better balanced by if they had a source of protein in there um, and also have a source of fat in there for like satiety. So I'm going to say that first is like, if you're doing smoothies, make sure they're well balanced. Um, in terms of the protein options or like smoothie additives, you don't necessarily have to go to anything powdered or pre-made or supplemental for the smoothie. You could do like Greek yogurt or cottage cheese or um, nut butters, for example, um, as your protein source. You could also do like a supplemental protein powder, like a clean, like grass-fed whey protein. Um, a collagen protein, just ensuring that it's, you know, from a grass-fed source and is not extracted with chemicals. You know, I met, already mentioned pea and rice protein as options. Um, those could also be like an, you know, an additive if you don't want to do one of the other food sources I mentioned. As far as like additional ones, you know, greens powders, it's like I don't have a problem with the greens powders itself. It's just that a lot of these supplement companies put in a lot of extra random stuff in their product. So like, are there herbs in like a high enough quantity that we might be concerned that we don't have much data on that herb related to pregnancy, right? Mm -hmm. Are we, are we adding additional vitamins on top of what you're already getting in your prenatal? So now you're almost getting like a double dose of your prenatal. Um, did they add caffeine or guarana or like other ingredients that are 
you know, stimulants, you know, caffeine is something that you want to limit in pregnancy. So did they put like green tea extract, green coffee extract, caffeine itself, like some of these stimulating herbs that we, again, don't really have much research on in pregnancy. I just think you have to be cautious. Um, I would say if you want greens in your smoothie, just like add your handful of fresh or frozen greens yourself and like call it a day. If, if you do want to do, you know, additional stuff, like sure, just, you know, check the ingredients to make sure there's not a bunch of like crazy stuff in there, like right. a bunch of sweeteners in there. There's just so many things. I used to actually have clients bring in the containers into the office so we could actually look at them together and like see what's in there and whether or not it was safe. I, I typically like default to just single ingredient or like a handful of ingredient sort of things, so, like a protein powder. It's like, just go for the unsweetened plain. If you want extra sweetness, you like add it yourself, you know, and then the greens powder, like go for one that's like only greens and not all this other, like just kitchen sink of ingredients. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about like other things that you should be careful of. I know I I've never gone through pregnancy, so I've heard things like things you can't eat certain types of fish and lunch meat and things like that. What is, what are things that you should be really careful of, um, in terms of food and pregnancy? So my answer is probably going to be different than most people's answer to this question. Um, so my experience clinically is that when women come to me at the beginning of pregnancy or even mid-pregnancy, the question is always, what can't I eat? What do I need to avoid? There's like all this automatic built-in fear around eating in pregnancy because they might have been told that something is unsafe. So first we have to understand why certain things are on these foods to avoid list in the first place. What is the relative risk of actually getting sick or having harm from eating those foods and then what is the risk benefit if you are to eat or avoid that food say let's go with avoid what is the risk if you avoid that food to your nutrient intake versus what is the benefit if you eat that food to your nutrient intake so i, I take a pretty deep look at this in chapter four of real food for pregnancy um for people who really want to like jump into the stats, but a, a lot of the foods that are on the foods to avoid list are either there for food safety reasons or toxin reasons. Toxin reasons is primarily mercury from fish. Um, however, there are plenty of low mercury fish and even the conventional guidelines recommend eating up to 12 ounces of low mercury fish and seafood per week, right? So I'm not even going against the guidelines to say that. Um, and we actually show their best neurodevelopmental cognitive outcomes are among children born to mothers who eat a minimum of 12 ounces of seafood and fish per week. And the worst outcomes are among those who eat none. So we have to be careful about how people interpret this information. Like caution with mercury and fish means caution with eating the specific species that are high in mercury, not avoiding all fish. So be cautious with consuming tuna. The FDA recommends no more than six ounces per week. I agree with that. And then no like swordfish, king mackerel, shark, and tilefish. Those are typically like the big four that they list off. You can get other more specific lists that you can like, you know, quantify low, high, you know, moderate mercury, but generally like smaller fish have less mercury. They've lived a shorter lifespan and eaten less fish that have lots of mercury in them. 
Um, the other issue with the food safety or the issue with foods to avoid is food safety. So that comes down to like, this food could contain salmonella or is likely to be contaminated with salmonella or listeria. And these are, you know, dangerous for you to um, contract during pregnancy and, or you may be more susceptible to them during pregnancy because of your, you know, immune system changes. What's crazy about this is I still kind of don't understand <laughs> The, the, the foods that made it on the don't eat list are not necessarily the foods that are statistically most likely to get you sick. So let me give you an example. Eggs eaten raw or with undercooked yolks are, they generally recommend you avoid that. However, eggs only account for 2% of foodborne illness outbreaks in the US. You know what accounts for more than half? Fresh fruits and vegetables especially fruit and leafy greens. And nobody is telling you not to eat fruit. Nobody is telling you not to eat a spinach salad or put raw kale in your smoothie. So like, it's completely arbitrary why certain things are on the list. And it's interesting in that it puts mostly animal foods on the list. So it puts like pre-made pate, it puts undercooked eggs, undercooked meat, raw or undercooked fish, um, lunch meat and deli meat, soft cheese, raw cheese, raw milk. And yet those are not the ones that are most significantly linked to foodborne illness outbreaks. They estimate like the amount of, you know, foodborne illness outbreaks from deli meat, for example. It's like ridiculous. In fact, I'm just going to look up the statistic because it's so absurd. I put it in the book. That's I so... So crazy. I'm like blown away by the vegetables. I want to hear the statistic. This is crazy. Yeah, I'm going to pull it up because I think it is really, um, I don't have statistics on every single food because they haven't necessarily studied it specifically, but here, so based on data using the US FDA um, risks of listeria, researchers estimate one case of listeria per 83,000 servings of deli meat, or one case of listeria infection per 5 million servings of soft cheese consumed by pregnant women. Um, the other one, salmonella, the likelihood that an egg contains salmonella is anywhere from one in 12,000 to one in 30,000 eggs. And those odds are sevenfold lower if those eggs are sourced from chickens raised on an organic farm or on pasture. So again, you've got to just look at the relative risk. Um, I, I think every single food has the potential to be contaminated. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that when we get so caught up in this idea that there's like one food that's bad or dangerous, and then this other one is totally fine, is that you end up being not careful with your food safety with raw fruits and vegetables but you might actually choose to completely exclude a whole bunch of nutrient-dense animal foods in your diet. Um, whereas you probably could just take some common sense food safety and also your own personal, you know, risk aversion. Like, are you really uncomfortable with eating eggs over easy? Um, no worries. Are you still willing to eat them scrambled or hard boiled? No big deal. Nutrient intake the same. But mm -hmm. I would see people who are like, oh, I can't eat eggs in pregnancy. That was their interpretation of this information. Then they would eat cereal for breakfast. <laughs> you know, it's not nutritionally the same. Yeah. <laughs> so we just have to be 
you know, smart about it. I think yeah. we need to focus a little more on like just general food safety and awareness and, um, and not like demonize particular types of food. And I also think it's really interesting that different countries have different guidelines or interpretation of this information as well. So you go to Japan and they encourage raw fish consumption. Mm-hmm. In the UK, raw fish consumption is fine by their own guidelines from the NHS. Um, because most seafood seafood that's used in sushi is like flash frozen. So the risk of like parasites and other issues is much lessened because of its microbial screening and the way that it is processed. Um, of course, it doesn't matter how well it's processed if it's like handled poorly or you have like, you know, sushi leftover from the night before. Like obviously don't eat leftover sushi. Don't eat sushi that you like bought at a gas station, you know, like <laughs> get it from a reputable place. Yeah. What about the like leafy greens and fruits and stuff? Is there a way that you can be extra cautious? How should you express caution in that? Well, part of the reason that leafy greens can are so susceptible to contamination, much of the contamination either occurs in the field itself, if they're like fertilizing with manure and it hasn't been properly composted before it was put on the fields or in the processing. So because of how large our food supply is, you know, it's not like one bunch of spinach has some extra E. coli in it because like a deer pooped in the field next to it, right? It's like now that head of spinach got mixed in a giant vat with all the other spinach and now contaminated a whole lot. And you have this like foodborne illness outbreak, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so whenever possible, I would say buying your food locally can really reduce your risk. Um, the likelihood, it's like, again, the likelihood that you're going to get sick from something that was like produced locally, shipped locally, like it's probably hasn't been around quite as long, hasn't been transported as far. There's not as many opportunities for it to be exposed to temperatures that cause bacteria and whatnot to thrive. Mm-hmm. Um, another one, if you're just unsure about it altogether, would be just to cook it. You know, a lot of these a lot of these potential bacterial infections and parasites and other things are killed by heat. So if Mm -hmm. you're really, really concerned, then you can just cook it. I mean, same goes for any of the foods, you know, plant or animal foods that I mentioned, you could just cook it for your own peace of mind. Um, You can also, you know, try to wash it really well, maybe do like a diluted water and um, diluted uh, white vinegar. So just the acidity itself um, can help, although I don't think there's any like as much of a guarantee as cooking. You can watch like the FDA's um, announcements on uh, foodborne illness outbreaks. I can't remember the name of the exact site, but if you search for it, you can like monitor, you know, which brands they've identified. But of course, that's already after people have gotten sick. Right. So I think we also just have to kind of own there's just a risk of food poisoning with anything. Um, Mm -hmm. The majority of foodborne illness outbreaks happen in pre-prepared foods and foods at restaurants. It is much less likely to happen at home. Um, The other thing for fruits and vegetables would be opting for just preparing it from its whole form at home versus buying pre-chopped fruits and vegetables. I know it's really convenient when they're pre-cut, but that again introduces an opportunity for them to get contaminated Plus, you know, if you like cut open a vegetable and like leave it out on the counter or leave it in the fridge, it goes bad significantly faster than if it was left whole, right? So you're just introducing more time for it to be exposed to pathogens. So 
again, if you're extra concerned, you know, just prepare everything from whole. Um, or if you are buying pre-cut vegetables, cook them. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your views on things like uh, you mentioned sparkling water earlier and that made me think like is sparkling water something that's totally okay like I've never even thought about that but during pregnancy is that good there shouldn't be a problem with sparkling water necessarily um I think you know you can take things you can take things to like as many levels of perfectionism as you want right so you know technically Sparkling water is usually coming in a can Mm -hmm. that's like lined with a BPA or other plasticizer or a plastic bottle. Like there's going to be some leaching of chemicals into it, but listen, like your yogurt's also in a plastic container yeah, and like, this is also in a plastic container and this is also in a can. So you just kind of have to make your choice on where you're going to make the call on what you avoid or not. Certainly they have BPA-free cans, but then they're using a BPA alternative and like, ah, da, 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 da. I do yeah. have a whole chapter on toxins in real food for pregnancy, um, which can be kind of overwhelming, but I try to just give you like the main action points and you don't have to do every single thing, but if you can identify areas that like, wow, this is really increasing my toxin exposure via this thing, um, then you can take steps to mitigate it. But I would say if you're, say, first trimester. And the only thing that's helping you with your nausea is like sparkling water with lemon. I think that's a a fair trade-off, right? Yeah. Um, Should the sparkling water be like all of your liquid for the whole day? I mean, maybe not because you are going to be getting like minute amounts of some of those plasticizers by default. But again, you can make that argument for everything. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I love like how every single question I've had for you, you're like, it's in my book. I got it. I'm just going to get that book when I'm pregnant and like use it as a reference (laughs) every little bit. Um, What about caffeine and like wine or alcohol in general? So caffeine is an interesting one. Um, They've tried, so they've always set limits on caffeine intake of no more than two to 300 milligrams per day, depending on whose guidelines you're looking at. And they've actually tried to disprove those guidelines. Like, can we set the bar a little higher? So there's like more wiggle room for coffee, for example, and they just don't have enough evidence either way. So we keep kind of coming back to this two to 300 milligram level. And I usually just default to the 200 milligram level. So Um, that means like a typical, and this is, this is small. So take note of the serving size, an eight ounce cup of coffee. That's like moderately strong is about a hundred milligrams of caffeine. Um, eight ounces is small, right? Most people are drinking like a 12 ounce cup of coffee at minimum or more than that. So that could be like one to two moderately strong coffees per day. Um, depending on the size of your coffee and and how strong you roast it or brew it. Tea and chocolate. And there's some other foods that can naturally contain caffeine that might be in like supplement ingredients and stuff or added caffeine to like uh, energy beverages or those sorts of things. Um, Usually, I mean, the added caffeine, yeah, avoid those, avoid those energy drinks for sure tea and chocolate are pretty low in caffeine that it's probably not going to be an issue unless you're drinking like 
six plus cups of black tea per day brewed very strong or like I don't know eight plus ounces of super dark chocolate a day yeah <laughs> depends on how dark the chocolate is how much caffeine is in there so those are usually non-concerns the caffeine thing really comes down to coffee and it's okay to have a little but I would just keep it minimal the alcohol is um is interesting and I I, I do again go through both caffeine and alcohol in um chapter four of real food for pregnancy for people who want a little more like nuanced discussion, but alcohol is one where we know that they're at very high intakes that is linked to certain birth defects or fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And again, researchers have tried to look at like, is there a threshold where we can guarantee a small amount of alcohol is safe? Because there's some countries like I am told in France and parts of Europe, having one alcoholic beverage per day is totally permissible in pregnancy, like a glass of wine with your dinner or a beer or whatever. Um, and in the States it's very strict, like no alcohol whatsoever. And again, there's a lot of debate because there have been studies showing that a single beverage is not a problem and it's more at like these higher intakes or when it's like a higher intake at a single day, like binge drinking on one day. So like one drink over seven days is a different risk than four drinks on one day. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Right. Um, Cause it really has to do with like how much alcohol are you like transferring in utero? Like it is a toxin, right? Mm -hmm. So I kind of leave it up to people to make the call and what they want to do. Um, I personally think abstaining like 99% from alcohol um, would be optimal since there's, you're not really getting any nutritional benefits from it. There might be risks. And then in addition to it, your body has to expend nutrients via detoxifying it via your liver that could otherwise be going to baby, mm -hmm. especially like zinc and choline and some of your B vitamins. Like those are being used up to detoxify alcohol instead of being sent to baby. So, right. You know, I don't think people need to stress about like, I just want a little sip of wine or I want to try a sip of my partner's beverage. Like you're totally fine. Don't freak out. <laughs> you know, are we justified in like consuming alcohol on a regular basis? I think that's a little more questionable and I can't, I can't really make like the nutritional um, excuse that that's like a good idea. Is it going to be necessarily harmful? I can't say right, <laughs> you know, like right. the research is up for debate on that. Um, but it's probably not going to be overtly like it's not adding to your like right. nutritional status or your energy levels or a lot of things, you know, pregnancy is hard and you don't want to make it harder. Yeah. Um, in terms of nutrition, um, does it change at all when you're breastfeeding? Yes, it does. So your nutrient requirements actually go up postpartum, okay. particularly if you are breastfeeding. So not only do you need to replenish from what was transferred from you to baby over the nine months of pregnancy. I mean, you, you exit pregnancy at your like most nutritionally depleted state you will probably ever be in, in your life. Um, but you also need to like replenish for what was lost during birth, which could have been like a very long labor, which is like essentially like a marathon is very physical. It could have been that plus like an emergency C-section or if it was a C-section without labor, natural labor prior, you still have major abdominal surgery. Like any way mm -hmm. you slice it, birth, 
is a huge feat. And it's something that you need to nutritionally replenish for. And then following that, if you're breastfeeding, you now have an additional loss of about 500 calories worth of energy, plus all the nutrients that go along with it in continuing to nourish your baby instead of them, you know, being fed via your placenta and umbilical cord inside of you. Now they're, they're being fed at the breast and it's totally wild um, for women who exclusively breastfeed. That's like six months of this baby's growth is entirely from your body. I mean, it's insane when you actually think about it. It's like a total miracle. Yeah. Um, but there are nutritional costs associated with that. And so we do need to be thinking about eating more food, consciously eating more food and continuing to have that focus on nutrient density. Mm-hmm. Um, and a big one is really getting enough protein. A new study just came out showing that protein needs postpartum are much higher than they thought previously much like our understanding with pregnancy as well. Um, And it just so happens that many of your protein rich foods are the richest sources of a lot of the micronutrients you need to replenish as well. So absolutely like continue as best you can postpartum. Um, I do have a blog post on my site that has um, real food postpartum recovery meals with like 50 plus recipes I link out to and the rationale for why you wanna focus on this during that time. Um, Because I do think it takes some planning it's, it's not easy. You you know, you can't really expect to be in the kitchen cooking when you have a newborn, like you need to have either people doing it for you, food delivered via like a service or a meal train that your friends have set up, or you've pre-prepared freezer meals, or maybe you have family with you cooking for you or like a superstar chef partner, you know, right. (laughs) You need, you need somebody to be like doing the work for you to provide you with the nourishment. You got to rely on the you know, community or try to recreate that in any way you can. Yeah, that's, I, I, like you said, pregnancy and breastfeeding is like the most, I've never experienced it. And already I'm like, it's the coolest thing. Like my friends are pregnant and I'm just like, this is, it's incredible to think about. So um, your body can do incredible things, but you, (laughs) you mentioned I'm sorry, you mentioned um, increasing your calories for breastfeeding. Do you like, is the eating for two saying true throughout pregnancy as well? Somewhat. So you need, so breastfeeding is more calorie intensive than pregnancy okay, um, and more nutrient intensive than pregnancy itself. By the like conventional standards, the understanding is that your energy and nutrient needs don't increase dramatically in the first trimester, but in the second and third trimester, they are higher. And there are different theories and different calculations and a whole bunch of different studies arguing about how much more nutrition you need at different stages of pregnancy. Um, But suffice to say, most people kind of settle on around 300 calories a day extra, maybe a little more towards the end of pregnancy. And a lot of that depends on like how your activity levels have changed during pregnancy. So if you're significantly less active than you were prior to pregnancy, your calorie needs are not going to be that much higher, right? Because you've made up for that change by like decreasing your energy output, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're looking at, it's not eating for two in the sense of you need double the calories. It's like one researcher put it, it's like eating for Mm 1.1. So the energy needs and nutrient needs, you know, increase, um, but not 
doubling. Uh, yeah. I do think the focus needs to be more on increase your intake of nutrient dense foods. Cause there are some nutrients that your needs increase by like 50% or more, even though you're like energy intake only increases by maybe 10%. Mm -hmm. Right. So. Yeah. So is there any other things that you should know going throughout pregnancy or be aware of in relation to either nutrition or just pregnancy in general that you'd like the listeners to know? Well, I hope I haven't overwhelmed you with all the information. <laughs> I think um, I, I, because I like going into some of these, you know, more nuanced details and kind of question some of the guidelines, I think sometimes it sounds like really overwhelming. But if I can leave listeners with like a few, you know, reassuring tidbits is that if you eat more protein and you're an omnivore, you're likely going to cover the vast majority of your, your nutrient needs from food alone. Okay. So eat more protein is probably one of the most important things because I think, or at least I've found most women are not eating enough. And when it comes to pregnancy, especially, um, even more so we find women are not eating enough, particularly in the third trimester, something like 67% of women are not eating optimal amounts of protein. And it's a two birds with one stone situation. You get your protein needs met and you meet a lot more of your micronutrient needs as well. So that's like an easy one. Another thing that I will say is in terms of like, just generally feeling well and having energy, make it a habit to eat breakfast and make sure your breakfast is not only carbs. I call them naked carbs. So make sure your breakfast is not just like oatmeal and fruit, all carbs, which is gonna give you like a blood sugar spike and crash. And you're gonna be like hangry and hungry and irritable and on a blood sugar roller coaster the rest of the day. If you instead have some protein at breakfast, even if there's carbs there, that's fine, but have more protein, incorporate some fat, um, you're going to have much more stable blood sugar, better um, hormonal balance, better energy levels, less mindless snacking and crazy sugar cravings the rest of the day. And with those two things, a lot of other nutritional issues end up just being like moot points. You know, you mm -hmm. can get down the rabbit hole of like the, you know, greens powder supplement added to the smoothie. But if you forget these two basics none of that stuff is going to make up for it. So um, we can keep it really simple with those two things. And you're like 90% of the way there. I love that. And I love everything that you shared today. I think it's so fascinating to, again, talk about the human body and what it goes through in pregnancy. And I think it gives peace of mind because you see what you, the first person, first thing people do when they get pregnant is look like, okay, what should I be avoiding? And like you said, there's so much more important things that we should be focusing our energy on. So um, before you go, I would love for you to take a second to tell the listeners where they can find more information about you and your incredible books that I'm so excited to get. <laughs> sure. Yeah. You can find my work at my website, which is lilynicholsrdn.com. And there's a tab there for my books. So you can see um, I have Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Uh, unless you've just been diagnosed with GD, I would recommend you do the pregnancy one personally. Um, I have many, many blog posts up there. There's at least 250 up there by now. I link out to many of my different interviews that I've done. I have 
many freebies, including the first chapter of Real Food for Pregnancy that you can read for free, just to get a feel for like the writing style and whether you wanna actually go, go forth with buying the book. Um, and then as far as social media, you can find me mainly on Instagram. I'm on the other platforms too, but as far as like where I post most regularly, it is Instagram and my handle is the same. So it's at Lily Nichols RDN. Awesome. And I will make sure to link everything in the show notes. Um, thank you so much for coming on the Jessica Hazeman podcast. It was a pleasure having you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Jessica Hazeman podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a second to leave a rating and review. You have no idea how much I appreciate your support. If you're looking for a cheat sheet or a detailed summary of today's episode, head to www.jessicahazeman.com slash podcast. Thanks for being here and I'll see you next week.